All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. I'm joined by a badass, Ken Rideout, 52. Yep. You look good. <laughs> Thank you. It's always funny to hear like a real badass call me anything other than an old dad. Well, I, I, you know, one, I know this, if we stepped outside and, and put our fists up, you, you'd knock me down in a heartbeat and I would uh, gladly take that beating. Um, <laughs> having watched some of your uh, content, but... Um, Ken, one, you, you've emerged as one of the world's top marathon runners. Is that within your age group or just across? Oh, I wish I was the best in the world for all age groups. But no, I won that age group world championship. So over 50, I'm the world champion. That's insane. I know. It sounds crazy to say it. But it's insane because, one, I want to get back into your, you know, where you were born and raised and your childhood because you overcame adversity. Mm. But, I mean... Were, did you consider yourself a runner in your teen 20s, or was it boxing was your game? No, I, I wasn't even into boxing. I played um, high school and college uh, hockey and football. I played two NCAA sports. Neither very good, but I was like jack of all trades, master of none. I was good enough to be on the team, but I was never really a standout. And then I was boxing through high school and college, and then it, it, when I moved to New York, I boxed for the New York Athletic Club. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Eventually became addicted to opioids, and then as a way of coping with the um, recovery process, I started running. And um, I tell this story frequently, and I mean it with, um, I, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but I just got to a running event, and I was like, these guys are a bunch of fucking nerds. Like, I can just out-hustle and out-grind these guys. And I say that saying, I'm the king of the nerds, but um, that's essentially what I did. I, I was running with no real goal or purpose, just sobriety and and for 90 minutes a day i wouldn't focus on sitting alone with myself and contemplating doing drugs again and um it started to become a source of pride and i slowly started to get better you can't help but to get better if you're doing something that long every day so i was running a minimum of 10 miles every day and um i entered some races eventually and slowly moved up the ranks very quickly and then I won a couple of races. I won the Malibu half marathon. Then I won the Pasadena half marathon. And at that race, there was about 9,000 people that finished in the Rose Bowl. It was on TV. <laughs> the funny thing is they interviewed me on KTLA right after the interview. They're like, okay, here's the winner over here. It's somewhere on my Instagram. And the guy's like, how? The woman goes, it was all oh, the first place finisher. How was it out there? I was like, oh, doesn't say much about the competition when an old man is winning by this much. <laughs> That was like inadvertently gave a zinger to everyone who ran, but I meant it. I meant it uh, jokingly. But yeah, then it just kind of happened. It wasn't a goal to be like an elite runner. I just was running. It's like you know, if you were into skydiving and you go skydiving so many times that eventually people are like, dude, this guy's an awesome skydiver. You see the tricks he's doing. You're like, oh shit, I'm good at this. Everyone's not doing this. And that's kind of how it evolved. Where were you born? Boston. Boston, I thought. You get, you still got the uh, accent. You're still living in Boston, right? No, I live in Nashville. I, I moved to New York as an adult, and then um, right when I started working, worked in finance on trading desks for 20 years. I lived in London, Hong Kong, and then I moved to L.A. I was there for the last, for five years, and now I've been in Nashville for two. Nashville's a good place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely stick out like a sore thumb in Nashville. So, in interesting path. I mean... You picked up boxing or you started boxing in your teenage years. Yeah. From what I read for one, not only to defend yourself in a rough neighborhood, but also your confidence. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I'd say this like 
honestly, I was scared to death of fighting. I still am. I think everyone is. I think it's just a matter of how you, what is your relationship with that fear. It's okay to be afraid. You know, from Navy SEAL stuff, I'm sure all the training you did, you'd be like, we're going to do what today? Come on. Like, and then you're just like, okay, what's the technique? I was explaining this to my children the other day because I can have them convinced that their only choice for school is like Navy, West Point, or Air Force. And they're like, Dad, it looks like it's really hard. I said, everything is hard, but they're going to show you how to do it. And you're like, well, what about jumping out of a plane? I said, they're going to tell you how to do it. They're not just going to put you on the door and be like, jump. And if you follow exactly how you're supposed to do that, you'll eventually understand that there is a method to everything and um so when i was a kid there was it was just an aggressive place like when i graduated high school i worked as a guard in a prison for uh, four years to pay for school and my brother and stepfather at different times were inmates in this prison where i worked so i say that only to give context as to where and how i grew up it was like not a warm and fluffy place it was the opposite of the way my own children are growing up so there was constant violence. I lived, my, my wife's brother lived with us who was a lifelong heroin addict when um, this was, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when people didn't do heroin on, like out in the street like they do now. And um, it was just a violent, aggressive place. And I was like, I have got to figure out a way to get comfortable with some of this aggress aggression that's around me and aggressiveness. And um, I went to the Somerville Boxing Club. And even that is not like a... Uh, Box aerobics club. This is like a hardcore boxing gym. That fucking heavyweight champion of the world, Johnny Ruiz, was training in there. And um, yeah, it was, they weren't like, hey, come on in, armor on you. They're like, okay, like it's all business. And it was intimidating, but I just kept going, kept going and thinking, okay, eventually this is going to get easier. And it just never does. You just get more comfortable with the fact that it's okay to be scared. Everyone is scared. It's just not okay to like be afraid. Do you consider your upbringing? probably your best education that prepared you for the hardships of life? Yeah, probably. But I don't look back at it with any fondness. My wife's mm. like, thank God for you went through that. I'm like, no, I wish I didn't. I could do without this, all this fucking emotional trauma. turmoil. <laughs> and yeah, trauma. Yeah. I just came back from a place called the um, on-site workshops. That's a trauma healing center that even, even acknowledging the fact that there was trauma in my life took a long time for a, you know, for like most guys, I'm like, I don't have fucking trauma. I can deal with anything. But once I got there and started doing the work uh, in this individual intensive therapy for several days, I was like, man, what a, sh what a shitty deal I had for a little while. But, you know, it, 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 it is what it is. Like, you, there's people that are going through 10,000 times worse than what I'm going through. I mean, just think about people that live in undeveloped countries, what they're going through. I think about that kind of stuff all the time in relation to everything I'm doing. When I did that race in Mongolia across the Gobi Desert, I've said this before, but when I was going through hard days there, I kept reminding myself, honestly, and it worked. I was like, there are people that are doing this in special forces, but someone's trying to kill them while they're doing this. And they're like, they don't have a choice. Like, I'm paying to do this. Like, and then it all became relative. It all became relative. And I was like, no big deal. We're going to get through this. I'm not going to die. And that became like a source of uh, energy where I was like, huh, this is easy compared to what a lot of people are going through. So that's a, you know, from the streets of Boston into to finance. And I, I got to assume you started to do very well for yourself. Where, where did the opiate addiction come into play? How did, how did that start? Yeah, I was, um, I, I, I mean, 
the whole journey into finance was crazy. I started in like a bottom position, you know, a junior position and I moved up very quickly. And the way I did it is I, I was literally being hazed on a trading desk. This is in like uh mid nineties. And um, long story short, they were hazing the shit out of me. And one day I just couldn't take it anymore. I slapped the guy across the face and like almost knocked his head off his shoulders. I mean, I, I cuffed him. Like, I mean, he was like rattled. Um, and they fired me, but when the guys, the bigger, the big clients from Enron heard that this happened, the head of trading at Enron called me and was like, Hey, uh, so-and-so is going to give you a job, a competitor, and now you're going to cover me. So I went from like the junior guy with no real customers to now the biggest customer in the world on a trading desk that was like not very good. But now we were like had the flow from the biggest trader in the world and my career just skyrocketed. It went from like, I went from making like 40 grand to like 250 grand in like six months, which is insane. I mean, 40 grand was decent to me. 250 was like 250 million. And, um, when that happened, I was suffering massively with like a fraud complex or imposter syndrome. I wasn't comfortable in those circles. Like everyone that I was working with was like, I have a sociology degree from Framingham State College, right? I worked in the prison to pay for it. I was now sitting on either side of me were guys from like Harvard undergrad, Columbia MBA, Princeton MBA, like just crazy academic pedigrees. The guys worked at Goldman. This one worked at Morgan Stanley. Like I couldn't get... In, even an interview with those kind of banks at the time. So when that happened and I, I had an, a, a procedure on my ankle, I discovered uh, Percocet. They prescribed Percocet. Once I discovered the feeling that those drugs, those drugs provided, it was like the answer to all my prayers from my, even through childhood, I always had like crazy anxiety. I was always like with the fighting. I was like, I'm so nervous about this. I can only think of one way to deal with it. And that's to confront it and, and get comfortable with What's going on? Like, I have to learn how to do this because I don't want to get caught slipping here. And when I found the opioids, I was like, oh, everything is good in the world. I have no concerns whatsoever. It was like the happiness that I always wish I had. And uh, unfortunately, that becomes a big lie. And uh, in, in, in dealing with that, not only do you now still have the same anxieties and uh, issues you had prior to the addiction, but now you have this uh, pesky little addiction to deal with. And taking opioids every day for 10 years, you don't just stop. Like, you know, so imagine for 10 years, let's say after a year or two, I'm like, oh, okay, I got to get off this shit. And you don't just stop taking them. Like, I mean, imagine having the worst flu you've ever had and it lasts for two weeks and you can make it stop at any time by getting high again. So for 10 years, I was like, I don't have two weeks to like go through this, make excuses. Then I'd go have a vacation. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do this over vacation. Then I'd be like, oh, I don't want to ruin my vacation being sick the whole time. I'll do it when I go back to work. And it was just, just vicious. a vicious cycle. And then eventually, you know, I got the help that I needed and, uh, went to like an outpatient detox facility. And uh, even that was a nightmare because when I was going through the withdrawals and the um, detoxing off the drugs, they were giving me other drugs to cope with the withdrawals. And I essentially woke up one night either overdosing on the, uh, on the meds they had me on or, or, or some reaction with the meds. I just blacked out. And I was like, got up to pee, blacked out. My wife found me like that. And I just had to come clean and tell her everything because I had been hiding this from her. And most people would be like, how can you possibly hide that from your wife? She only knew me on drugs. She didn't know me sober. I was on drugs 24-7. I would take them as soon as I woke up, lunch, 
dinner, sometimes at night again, you know, and when people are like, oh, be careful, don't take too much Tylenol, I always laugh because I'm like, don't take too much Tylenol. I would take like six Percocet three or four times a day, every single day. <laughs> it, 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 when, I, when you think about how resilient your body is, I like I know from experience, like you can take a beating. <laughs> and it helps me in my endurance because I'm like, oh, I can take this. This is no big deal compared to what I've been through. Ten years. At least. That's insane. I what, know. I what know. was the, uh, the outpatient uh, treatment? <clears throat> how long was that? Only a week. You only have to like really be clean and sober for a week and then they can give you a, um, an opioid blocker called um, Vivitrol. It's a time release shot that you take every 30 days. And as long as you take it every 30 days, you can't get high. You know, if you take pills, they don't affect you. The opioid receptors in your brain are blocked from this drug. It's like a miracle drug. So I knew when I was going through the detox, I was like, let me just get to seven days with no nothing in my system. And then once you get there, of course, it's so hard because at seven days, you're like, oh, my God, imagine how high I could get if I got high, if I took some drugs now. But I went, got the shot, and then I was, boom, I was good. It hasn't been, like, without slip-ups throughout the years. But then, you know, I was on the on the uh, blocker for 90 days, made it through, and then was good. And then over the course of the last, like, 10 years, I've had, like, slip-ups here and there. But it's, it's uh, you know, I think that it's it sounds like a much better story when you can tell someone, I got sober on this date and never did it again. And I wish that that was the case with me, but I've had slip-ups they become less and less frequent and i've been now got some like serious longevity behind me but i never feel like uh cured i'm always like oh, <laughs> i i don't want to like trust myself to be in the wrong situations it's like that feeling never leaves wait were you still functioning functioning at a high level in the high OBS? level high level i was making millions of dollars working in finance right. like wheeling and dealing and just yeah, but I was a horrible person. I wasn't nasty to people. I was just super aggressive, and um, I just didn't like who I became. It was it's such a shame to waste so much time in my life. It makes gets me makes me feel very emotional. I, I know finance is a high standards, high pressure environment. Do you think that environment lended to the opioid addiction? For me, it did. The pressure was overwhelming. And um, in in the job that I was doing, I was like, um, for a long time, I was an interdealer broker. And then I was a fixed income um, com commodity salesperson. So you live and die with the relationships you have with your clients. So your clients, when they do trades, they'll call you, trade through you. You make a commission for putting the trade yeah. together, the sizable. But you know, there's a finite amount of customers. There's a handful of sales guys on a trading desk. So you have your customers. I have a relationship with A, B, and C. A gets hit by a car. I'm like, oh, shit. My th third of my revenue is just gone. Or the guy gets fired. Or the guy goes to a head, leaves the bank, goes to a hedge fund. It's constantly changing. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of stress of knowing that, you know, your financial success depends on your relationship with other men and women. But that's a testament to why Enron moved with you as part probably the relationship you built with those guys and you're a straight shooter, yes, I can tell. That's it. They loved me because they knew that I would like, you know, when, when when you would get an order in finance and you announce it to the trading desk, all of your colleagues have their own relationships and there's a lot of confidential information flying around and it's very easy for people to kind of front run you or tell people like, oh, Enron's buying, so let's buy in front of them, for instance. 
And they, my customers always liked the fact that they knew that I would protect their interests to the best that I could. And I was aggressive in that role. Were you in the shape then that you're in now? No, not like this. I was probably more muscular and I, I lifted weights every day and I boxed. So I was like in good, I was in shape, but not like in, not like endurance athlete shape. It was different. I just looked like a, you know, like a bulky, regular hockey kid. finance nerd. Yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't seen too many bulky uh, finance nerds. <laughs> oh, no, there's some, there's, some, there's some finance killers. There's a lot of guys that come from, like, college football and come and play. There's, like, it's a cross-section of people. It's, like, you can make a lot of money there, so it attracts a lot of, like, really competitive alpha-type personalities. I mean, there's some dorks, but there's some serious athletes, too. It just seems cutthroat. That's <laughs> very cutthroat. Oh, it's the word. I, I hated every second of it. Like dog eat dog? dog People eat stab dog. you on the back? To... Oh, yeah. I mean, back in the day when I first started, it wasn't uncommon to see people have fist fights. I mean, eventually, you know, it became, everything became super politically correct. But when I lived in London, man, there was people throwing down. It was very aggressive. But I thrived in that environment, but I hated who I was. I hated that personality. I hated that side of me. Mm. I hated feeling like I was going to war every day. It's not healthy. So what I we, feel for like special operators being in that, in that mode of like time to kill, like it's time to get serious and like, you know, be very aggressive. I just, that, that mentality is, it's hard to turn that off. And you can only maintain it for so long. Yes. It's, you know, executive burnout as they call yeah. it, exists within special operations. I know it exists within your uh, industry. What what was the tipping point where, and I'm sure your wife was involved in the decision, you said, I'm getting out of finance and breaking off and doing something different. It was very gradual because like anything, it's like if you're making that kind of money, where else can you, Where like I didn't have any other skills. It'd be like being a special operator if you were making a million dollars being in the SEAL Team 6. And they're like, I can't do this anymore. Where the hell else are you going to be able to do special operations and get paid a million dollars? There's nothing, really. I mean, maybe like, uh, what, uh, Blackwater or one of these, like, contractors. But you're still in the mix. Like, you're still doing yeah. the same thing. So I um, I went to work at a um, fintech startup with a friend of my financial technology startup with a guy who left Goldman. And I knew it was a long shot. I wanted it to work, but I knew it probably wouldn't. And I... It's crazy. I just took a leap of faith. And I talk about this all the time with people about if you're waiting for the time to be right, just give up. You have to make it right. And sometimes it's going to be painful to get to that point. But if you're waiting for the stars to align, it just doesn't work like that. So I moved to L.A., sold our house, took what money we had from selling the house, was living in a huge rental house in Pacific Palisades that was way too expensive I didn't sleep for like six months and I, I was knowing that this job was probably not going to work out, but now I live in LA and there's not a lot of trading desks. So I knew that the options, the jobs that were available, they were very limited. And, um, I met a guy while I was riding my bike, I was really into Ironman for a little while. And I met a guy and I, he owned an asset management firm and I convinced him, Jack, Jack McDowell, he actually lives here in Austin. I still do work with them. He runs a shop called the Palisades group. He's like the nicest guy I've ever met. He's like, the guy changed my life. I like try not to get choked up talking about him. He's like, I basically was like, can I run business development for you and help you grow your firm and grow the assets? And he was like, well, you don't really have any experience. And I, I asked him for a year riding bikes every weekend. 
And eventually I was like, I'll do it for free and just see if it works. And he gave me the chance and I went there and it, and it worked and we started making money. And then again, test him into what a good guy is. Eventually he's like, you're wasting your time here. You can raise money for anyone. And I'm going to pay you for the next year some crazy amount of money as a consultant. Like, I'm talking tens of thousands of dollars every month for a year. And he's like, you're going to leave and go do this on your own. And I did, and it worked. And I started raising money for third parties, different, uh, you know, other venture and private equity funds, but also private placements. So for, like, brands, like, I worked for tons of brands in the health and wellness space and a lot of them worked and I would make small investments with my own money as a way to tell like the people in my kind of universe, like, Hey, I'm investing in this brand. You should come with me. Here's what they do. And we did in the early days, a few of them worked out really well. So now I've got this little network of guys that invest with me, but I also have relationships with most of the big uh, venture and private equity funds. So I've raised money from them. But when they're raising a new fund, I've also raised money for them. So obviously those are different audiences, right? Uh, a fund is raising from institutional allocators. So like insurance companies, mm -hmm. pensions, endowments. And um, over the years, I've just developed tons of relationships with different endowments. Like my friend Edgar Smith, who was at USC. Now he's at Directors Guild of America. My friend Paige Wang, who was at Caltech. Now she runs Cedar sinai So slowly you start to have relationships at all these institutional allocators. And these guys are like professional allocators. Like, so when you have a deal like Paige in particular, if I show her something and I'm not like dialed in, she'd be like, Ken, what are you doing? Get your shit together. And it's just funny because she's so kind, so sweet. And when you step, slip up, it's like, it's just like in, in the teams, if someone made a mistake and came and they weren't prepared, you'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, we're serious here. Don't, don't yeah. come with this. That's how these people, that's how professional allocators behave. And, um, it's refreshing to be around people like that, regardless of the industry, just people that take their shit seriously. And, um, I've tended to gravitate towards people like that, that I, I appreciate professionals. You know, whether it's like, like I was asking about the parachutes, like who packs it? I want to know like all the little details because all the, all the little things are what leads to wins. You can't just show up and win without having everything dialed, whether it's investing, operating, whatever it is. And uh, so, yeah, I've tended to build relationships with like-minded people. Iron sharpens iron. Yes. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we always said... And it's, I mean, this is a common mantra in, in any industry or profession is the battle's won before you even step on the battlefield. Yeah. That's what I like talking about operators. My friend, um, Mitch Hall is, was a Navy. Yeah, I know Mitch. Oh, he's a good dude. We've done a lot of training together, biking, running, um, Stud. with him and with Lance Armstrong is a mutual friend of ours. And, um, I would, when I was talking to him, he would always say like, yeah, we would never go on a mission unless we knew we were going to win. Yeah. Shit can go wrong, but yes. we knew we were going to destroy them. Like we were going to, it was going to be a whitewashing and you know, you, you get surprised sometimes, but that's what you're training for. But he's like, most of the time we knew exactly what the outcome was going to be. Where did the uh, relationship, which you guys have a highly successful podcast with uh, Teddy yeah. come into play. I mean, how did, how did you meet him and how did you guys say, Hey, let's do a podcast together. Yeah. That's actually a good story because it's like, I was just describing about like-minded people and being attracted to people that are professional. My friend Rob Moore, who is the producer of that podcast, he's also the producer and business partner for Andrew Huberman. If you listen to the Huberman Lab podcast, he doesn't. Yeah, if you're not, 
you, so, you should start. Yeah. So the guy who runs that podcast and Andrew's partner who started it with him is uh, Rob Moore. And Rob Moore and I moved to L.A. around the same time in 2016, and we were both doing triathlon. He was working at a big um, public relations firm called Edelman, and I was working in finance. And we both left our corporate jobs at the same time and started just hustling on our own. And I had said to him, you should do PR for a couple of fighters. And instead of typical PR charges you for effort, not results, which I hate that model. It's like, dude, if you, if you get me media placements, I'll pay you. And we can come up with a sliding skill, but no one does it. So I said to him, why don't you represent a couple of these fighters and charge them for results? Long story. And, and so he did. He started working with this kid, Mike Lee, who lives in Austin here, uh, who was a middleweight, uh, super middleweight world champion. He fought Caleb Plant on the Pacquiao undercard. Really nice guy. And through working with Mike, they did a, um, Mike was promoting, uh, his dad was doing the promotion for one of his fights and they hired Teddy to be the commentator. And Teddy was being pushed out of ESPN, essentially. They weren't using him because he would always get on the mic and talk, tell the truth. Like, this was corrupt. This wasn't the right decision. And the promoters that they were in business with at the time, Top Rank, didn't like this. So they, and, and they had a huge deal with Top Rank. So Top Rank was basically like, we don't want him on the, on the calls. And after 25 years, they slowly segued him out. So John Lee, Mike's dad, connected Rob, who was doing PR for Mike, with Teddy. And they started talking and Rob was like, Rob was big on the podcast before podcasts even mm -hmm. existed. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to Teddy, you should start a podcast. And I have a friend who's a big fight fan who would be, do, who would be happy to do it with you. So Rob introduced me to Teddy and Teddy was like, all right, let's give it a try. And we started doing it and it just slowly, you know, I mean, when I listened back to the first few episodes, I'm like, oh my God, I was so bad. Um, but he stuck with me and... Uh, Teddy's been an incredible mentor to me and me, him and Rob, we built this up. And one of the first mandates I worked on when I left my job at the Palisades group was I raised money for a guy called David Sinclair. Um, he wrote the book, um, lifespan. He's an anti-aging genetics professor at Harvard medical school. He's been on Joe's show a couple of times. I raised money for his pharmaceutical startup and through him, Rob, I connected Rob with him. Rob did the PR for David's book lifespan through that Booking through the uh, publishing agent, Rob met Rich Davini, another SEAL guy. Rob Rich did, and I are close. Rob did the PR for Rich's book. Through Rich, he got connected with Andrew. And then he was like, Andrew, you should start a podcast. And then Rob, and Andrew would say this too, I'm very friendly with Andrew, that Rob basically masterminded the whole thing. They came up with the idea for the podcast, and then Rob is like the brains behind everything. He's like Damn. one of the nicest guys in the world. One he, of the he's most a kingmaker. He is the prof most professional. If you call him and it isn't, everything isn't dialed in, people are like, I can't get in touch with Rob. And I'm like, you must not have the right message because the guy doesn't waste time. And he is a young guy. It's funny because every time we're together, people are like, is that, is that your nephew? I'm like, what the fuck? We went, to, we went to dinner once in Texas the day before the Ironman Texas. And uh, I went to a restaurant one day. Rob came in the next day. We went back to the restaurant, and the waiter comes over and goes, oh, hey, man, is this your son? I looked at the guy. I'm like, dude, are you fucking crazy? You want a punch in the mouth? Is this my son? This is my friend. We're like 10 years apart. I was so hurt. So we joke about it all the time, but I always tell everyone Rob's my stepson. Your stepson. <laughs> it, Teddy seems like a sincere, genuine dude. The most. I, I tell people it's like... Um, like a uh, like a mob boss, there's no um, 
gray area. You know exactly where you stand. Kind of love that. And if you don't stand right in the middle, he will call you out on it, no matter what it is. It's just like deals in extreme truth telling. It's you know it, well from, and I'm sure it was the same with finance, where the community I, I came from, directness was appreciated. Oh yeah, but it seems like amongst I don't know, civilians, it's that that can be a, a serious turnoff. And it's more so now. We were just talking about this on the drive over here that the sensitivity levels <sighs> are. Um, it's extreme and it's it's so extreme that even if you question what is the whatever narrative it is like uh whether men can get pregnant like what well, that's a that that's a debate that's a conversation what the fuck are we talking about why is it why is it controversial to say that's not true like what and 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 like if you question what is clearly like the emperor has no clothes it's like you're the bad guy you're the bad guy if you don't go along with this like this woke narrative that's being pushed and it's literally like the emperor has no clothes how dare you say the emperor is naked everyone can see his beautiful clothes you're like no this dude is naked what are you talking about am i crazy so Sanity. I, can, I can see the hesitancy in your voice for not wanting to get canceled. So, oh, so no, we no, don't no, have no, to no. talk we'll, about we'll, this topic. We, no, 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 <laughs> we, we can. It's, I, I'm, no, I, I'm shaking my head. And it, How did we get here? And it seemed like COVID like amplified everything. I, it's almost like sanity is the minority in an insane world now. Yes, and it's like uh, we, we don't. We are not comfortable with someone disagreeing with us. They should spend some time in my house. Me and my wife agree to disagree about a lot of stuff. <laughs> what, do you guys keep a united front in front of the kids or do you do it over? We try to for sure, yeah. but, you know, my it wife's much out. more sane and stable than I am, but we try. <laughs> it's, I'm at a loss. Hey, one, I'm about adult independence. I mean, we're a constitutional republic meant to, to you know defend the minority and what they want to do in life as long as it does not impact or affect other people. 100%. And if somebody who is a naturally born female wants to say they're a man, have that. Couldn't do agree do your thing. Could not agree more. But when you start to sort of impose those views on me and say that I'm wrong, then we got a problem. I and, couldn't agree more. And I want to defend, like, you know, people... People have the right, and one, we, we defend it, First Amendment right. We need to protect that, That's much right. like we need to protect the Second Amendment, whether people like it or not. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think you could be anything you want. You can have any preference you want. It's not a problem. No problem. But when you start saying, like, you know, this guy was on the men's swim team, and now he's going to swim against the women, I'm like, that just doesn't seem right. Like, what woman wants that? What, what woman is saying, like, yeah, let the dudes come in down, come on and break all the women's records. It just doesn't seem, I don't know. And it's, like, crazy to even want to have that conversation. I think we're starting to see the pendulum come back a little. Mm -hmm. But it's only, you know, two to three degrees. Yeah. It, I think something catastrophic is going to happen where same people, the, the, the silent majority finally say, hey, this is, no, we're done with this. <laughs> I, I You're agree. going back to traditional values. Um. You know, go about your lives. The fact that we're calling that traditional values is crazy. It's like science and sanity doesn't want to rule the day. Like, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. 
it's it, and then from my viewpoint, what irritates me, and I, and I believe there needs to be like a military culture exclusion act, is when you try to bring those progressive woke policies and <laughs> place them over the military. Oh yeah, culturally, it's not a fit. Um, I mean, hell, DOD just requested one hundred and fourteen million dollars for more DE&I programs. When we're essentially at a time of war, not open combat, and our munitions stockpile is at an all-time low, you're going to spend $114 million on DE&I training when it's already, a, a, you know, the military is a leadership incubator. What's even more insane is how much they spent to rename all these bases. It's insanity. They say, I think the, the last figure I saw was $20 million dollars to rename all these bases, like Fort Bragg is now Fort Liberty, but those who served in Fort Bragg still call it Fort Bragg. Brother, if it was fucking $20, it would be too much. What are we doing? What, what, like, lighten up. Military is about toughness. Toughen up. Stop. How about this? I can't control the way you feel, and it's not my responsibility to pander to your feelings. Your safety? Sure. Your security? Sure. But the way you feel? You... I can That's feel what, problem. I can feel whatever I want to feel. Why yeah. is it your responsibility? I, dude, even just talking about this with my wife, like sometimes she'll say things that bother me or I'll say something that bothers her and she'll be like, that made me feel like this. I'm like, I can't control the way you feel. My intention was X, Y, Z. I didn't intend for you to feel hurt. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt you. But just so you know, intention and result, two different things. If I intended to hurt you, that's fair. But if I didn't intend to hurt you and you misinterpreted what I said, I can't change that. And worrying, spending emotional energy trying to worry about minutia and bullshit is such a waste of time. We're worried about feelings and there's like real conflict going on here. You know what I mean? Like we've, we've, we as a nation have become entitled and we've become comfortable. Way too comfortable. Lack of perspective across the board. I think that we have it too good, and it's as a result, we're just bored with winning. We're like, like Trump said, we're sick of winning, and now we're just like looking for reasons why we're losing. We're making shit up to lose about. Mm. We need uh, more business leaders in government. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, especially when it comes to the budget. But I, I think this is a good transition point because, Ken, you've lived one hell of a life. <clears throat> for the men that are listening to this, uh, the microphone is yours. What have you learned along the way about being a high-performing man? What are the principles you follow? What are the things you do on a daily basis from either, you know, workouts to diet uh, and even leading your family and your companies? What, I mean, what's, what's the theory, your strategy that you've figured out thus far, and I'm sure it will evolve when you're, you know, 60 and 65 and 70? I would say this, like no one is special or unique. We all feel the same things into... I think that one of the most important things that we need to focus on as men is mental health. And I think that it's so shunned and frowned upon to acknowledge your, um, any sensitivity, like don't be fucking unrealistic. Like you can be a killer, but you can still have your feelings hurt. You can still be sensitive to like the needs of your children. Trying to be a, um, a ninja about everything is a losing proposition. And I know because I tried to do it for a long time. And when I finally got real about my own mental health and got comfortable with, like I even said, going to a trauma healing center when I was driving there, I'm like, I don't have fucking trauma. That's for like people who have like, who are dramatic. But when you realize that like we've all, 
the trauma doesn't have to be like, you know, you were held prisoner of war. Trauma could be like you were bullied as a little kid and it still like lingers with you that like you certain things subliminally or subconsciously trigger you. And listen, I'm not suggesting to be an oversensitive, like, you know, feeling monster, but to not acknowledge your feelings, good and bad, is is a huge mistake. And I think that once you get comfortable with who you are and your strengths and weaknesses, pros and cons, you can really start to move forward in your life and, and have real meaningful connections. This, this really came full circle with me or, or, or came to the surface when I had, you know, having children and being married and you know, I, I've been married 17 years and, and being married isn't easy, man. When you, when I tell people this all the time, when you meet your wife, when I met her, we were like best friends. We'd travel, we'd sleep in, do whatever we want. I had money. It was fun. When you then have children together, now you're running a business. Start a business with your partner and see how well you get along. Now someone has, like, the store's open 24-7. Someone has to, like, feed, wipe their butts for, like, five years, like, that's a lot of responsibility. And if you're not on the same page with your partner on every single aspect, there's going to be conflict. And I think that learning to deal with that wasn't easy for me. My wife was born to be a mom. Like her dream job was being a wife and a mom. I wouldn't, I love being a dad, but I wouldn't say like all my life, I couldn't wait to be a dad. And like, yeah, I want to be a dad, but not to the extent my wife does. So compared to my wife, I'm like an amateur and she's like an, uh, you know, professional grade parent. Um, so the point is getting comfortable with my own emotional state and my own mental health was a struggle and it's taken a long time and it's starting to improve. <laughs> I'm sure it's not improving fast enough for my wife, but she has valid points and, but I'm trying to do it. And then the rest of the stuff, the physical fitness stuff and the acts of being a man is just like we talked about earlier. It's just extreme truth telling. Like, you know what to do. It's like people want to pay someone to teach them everything, teach them how to work out, teach them how to diet. When the truth is like, you need to lose weight, eat less, work out more. The end. Everyone knows. Every single person alive knows what they need to do. With my own running, I was running with some guys this morning. I did a shakeout run for the guys at um, Athletic Brewing. Shout out to Athletic Brewing. And um, was talking about improving in running. And I was like, anyone can do what I've done. I'm not a good runner. I just run more than you. I've run 10 miles a day minimum. Of, I've run a total of like 4,000 miles a year for the last several years. And I never take days off. I mean, I was running this summer and fucking tornado sirens were going off. And my wife was calling me like, the tornado sirens are going off. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I'm out here five miles from home. I'm going to run home. <laughs> what else am I going to do? Um, but there's just no excuses. And if you live your life like that, it's like the same thing in the, in the teams, right? <laughs> Imagine if hell week, you're like, dude, I need a day off, man. My legs are killing me. I'm just like, I just need an emotional break. Like, yeah, what do you do when there isn't room for an emotional break? So if you train your life to be prepared for anything, so you stay ready, you never have to get ready. Power through. Yeah, and to me, this is like my um, natural antidepressant. So I don't. There are certain responsibilities that have to be taken care of and our number one responsibility in life, we're all born with the same responsibility. Take care of yourself. This is your body. No one will take care of it for you. People might try to help, but if you don't do this, you're going to end up in a very bad position. So if you take that as serious as you should, 
that's how I think about it. It's like, this is my body. I have to take care of this. And, and I can already hear the people like, oh, you should take a break sometimes. You should take a dip. I do what I do for me. You do what you, I don't profess to have the answers. I would never tell someone you should do what I do. Yeah. This works for me. And the best is when people start coming in on social media and offering me advice. I'm like, what about my results suggest that I need any advice? Could I be better? Possibly, but I mean, I think I'm doing all right. I mean, I'm guessing along the way. I don't profess to know what I'm doing. I'm just guessing. This experiment is working. So I think that overall, in summary, it's just like taking extreme responsibility for yourself and stop lying to yourself and listening to all the bullshit out there. It's like, at the end of the day, you have, you're, you're alone with yourself a lot of the time. You better learn to like yourself. And that hasn't always been easy for me. It seems like everyone has a microphone these days on social media mm-hmm. without any credibility whatsoever. And, mm-hmm. and you know what I'm getting tired of is the motivational like <laughs> content. And, you know, we're in a crazy time. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure like the World War II vets during the Vietnam era thought this country was going to hell when the whole hippie movement was going on. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure every generation has that. But, you know, even with the... And let me start with this. I heard a good line the other day. Your body is the first line on your resume for which people make a snap judgment. If you're a trainer... Amen. If you're a trainer and you're frumpy... Like, <laughs> uh, and you step in front of a client, the, the client should be, I don't know, we're done here. If you can't live what you're trying to, to, to instill in me, then, then this, this isn't going to work. But what about this, this love your body for what it is sort of body shaming. And I'm not body shaming anyone. It's not body but, shaming. It's telling the truth. That's but, not healthy. And, and they're saying, well, you should love them. And, and the, the new beautiful is they're, they're putting these, these people on cover, uh, on the covers of, of magazine saying, this is the new beautiful. And I, in, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. 100%. But if you're looking at it from a medical, psychological perspective, visceral fat is proven to be damaging to to You don't see anyone 100 years old being real big. They tend to be very lean. People that are living long lives, the lean horse wins the race. I just look at, like you said, I'm not passing judgment on anyone, do what you want, but to suggest that someone who's like very overweight is in a healthy state. No, that your heart is carrying how much extra weight every single day. Yeah. yeah, But I think that to your point about trainers, I think that your body should represent everything that you stand for. When you walk into any meeting or any interaction, for me, it does. I, I I'm not shy about saying it. Like when I walk in, I want people to be like, Oh damn. Oh damn. This, you don't get there by accident. You ain't faking your way through that. That's this this guy's fucking crazy. He's like, well, he's working. That's that's the reaction that I want. I want to be able to put on a jeans and a t-shirt and not worry about anything else. Not have to like have labels dripping off me because I'm out of shape and I want to dist- distract you with how much money I spent on my sweater. There's a good line in the military, an ounce of appearance is worth a pound of performance, yeah. both your body and the way you dress when you're, you're stepping into a business meeting. Don't get me wrong. I love to get dirty, wear yep. T-shirts and, and cami pants. Um, that's insane. What You know, you've got a massive following, and I'm sure you've got a lot of dads that reach out and say, hey, you know, I'd love to be like you, but I've got kids, I've got work, I just can't find the time. No one ever I, says that because they know that I have all those things. It would be insane to be like, I've got kids, i got... 
I got four kids. I got 10 jobs. Everyone, I kind of like one of the pros and positives or negatives of social media, fortunately or unfortunately, people see what I do. I try, I, I also am, to your point, I'm hesitant about trying to be motivational. I'm not trying to be motivational. I'm just sharing real life stuff. Like here's what I did. Here's something that might help. Um, and it's been interesting to hear people say that I've inspired them because a lot of times That's I'll awesome. say to my wife, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm, I'm clearly doing something right, but I don't know what it is. And I mean that sincerely. I don't know. I just, I'm just, I've been doing this for so long. It's just like people just started paying attention. So to me, I'm like, where you been? I've been doing this. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, if anything, maybe I'm sharing more on social media, but it tends to be just clips from interviews like this. It's yes. not scripted stuff no. where I'm like, let me tell you how you're going to turn your life around. I don't have the answers. I can only tell you what I did. And maybe some of that information might be useful to others. And and sharing that sort of that knowledge transfer, as we say, is, is I mean, that's life. That's, yeah. that's the purpose. It's the same thing you're doing with your kids. I, I'm just, you know, people always say, well, I just don't have the time. <laughs> and I said, you know, my response is leaders make the time. Yeah. It's even, even in, in a business setting, you find the time to develop the people below you. You find the time. And yeah. if it's for five minutes, you have a philosophical conversation for five minutes about accountability. Yeah. Um, what time do you get up? Depends what the day holds. I mean, nothing is better than having nothing scheduled till like 10 or 11 so I can wake up at my leisure. I think that sleep is one of the most important things. To me, sleep is just as important as exercising. When I hear people say like, oh, man, just, like, I only sleep for a few hours. I'm like, what? You've got Dude, sleep I got to sleep. That's yeah. like the number one performance enhancing drug in the world. You should want to sleep as long as possible. If I don't sleep a long time, I get so frustrated. I'm like, damn it. I want to go back to sleep. So, but typically I would say I get up around five or six. Yeah. Depending on the day. I usually have coffee. I try to do a lot of work. First thing, as soon as I get out of bed, I try to do my Huberman protocol. I walk outside for a minute, try and look into the sun so. if it's, if I try to. And then I'll, um, I am very productive in the morning. I'll respond to all the emails that need to be responded to, get the day rolling, and then I'll run. And a lot of times I'll try to take, depending on what kind of calls I have, I'll take the calls while I'm running. If it's someone that I know, they understand, like, oh, I'm running. You know, and I feel, like, productive then. How many miles a day? Because I I did read that you used to do 10 miles a day. Does that fluctuate? Minimum of 10. It fluctuates higher, but never lower. Uh, What's higher? I mean, my longest runs are, like, 24 24. So you'll, you'll, you'll hit an actual marathon. Uh, not quite. 26.2 is a marathon, but I'm running the uh, Memphis Marathon on Saturday. I haven't even told anyone. I was trying to creep up on them and not let the competition know I'm coming until I just show up on the start line. Like, hey, what's up, buddy? You're here too? <laughs> Let's do this. But uh, so this today I ran eight and a half, so I'll start to taper down. Tomorrow I'll do six, and then Friday I'll do four, and then Saturday rock up and empty the tank. Nice. Should be good weather in uh, Tennessee this time of year. Yeah. 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 So it's such a weird feeling knowing that the race is coming because you're like, you know what's coming. You know, the pain that's coming is like. You still get nervous? Anxiety? Oh, my God. Hell yes. I get more nervous at a smaller race where I think I can win. At a big one, there's a lot of people to get into the shuffle. There's people to work with. At a smaller race, if I have a chance to win, sometimes you get off the front and you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to run by myself as fast as I can for 26 miles, knowing someone's behind me. So it's always a different type of uh, pain, but it's like, yeah, it's, I get super nervous knowing what's coming. Well, dude, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity. One, I just finished a can of athletic light. 
athletic brewing company. How did this relationship start? Are, are you an investor in this as well? Or I have, um, I did not invest, but I'm talking to Bill now, uh, Bill Schufeld, the um, CEO, about getting involved as an investor. Um, they reached out to me, and we did some, um, we did some activations together last year. I think the brand represents a lot of what I stand for, just being athletic, you know, being sober, and um, they're super nice guys, man. I love the thing I love about Bill. Right, you you meet uh, mercenaries or missionaries in businesses one guy is like i'm on a mission to build this brand and never sell it i said to bill early in our relationship man who do you think is the acquirer like what's the exit plan he's like no exit plan i'm gonna run this business forever i pay my investors dividends and i have no intention on selling this but then you can meet another brand that's you know solid brand but they're like yeah the exit plan is this we're gonna sell to uh nestle or we're gonna sell to pepsi as soon as this brand is big enough and those are mercenaries which is fine but I love a missionary. I love someone who's like, no, I'll run this forever. I think the guys at Athlete, um, Athletic Greens are like that too. I don't think they have any intentions of selling it. I, I've never I've never tried Athletic Greens, is it? Fantastic. Every morning? I take it every day. I would never miss a day. It's like an insurance policy for like health and immunity. They've been a partner of, and a sponsor of our podcast, but they're a huge Huberman um, partner. And uh, Rob uh, Moore is the one who told me about the CEO just being on a mission to be like, I'm never selling this company. I love it. Good. Yeah. They're cool. But these, both of these brands are perfect. Athletic Bruin, Athletic Greens, they're like perfect complement for each other. Well, the fact that in guys, I just drank this and it tastes like beer, but only 25 calories and no alcohol. That's right. correct. It's That's a great post. It's a great post race um, recovery drink for me. Good no calories. Kidding. Yeah, it's got all the stuff. Like, beer is a great recovery tool minus the alcohol. It, You know, the older I get, it, we drink in the teams. <laughs> we drink heavily in the teams. It was, it was just part of the culture. But the older I get, man, it's just, uh, I'll have a mimosa every once in a while with my wife. Yeah. Like, we get sent whiskey. We've got a whole thing of whiskey, like, <laughs> at least once a week. Only reason I have that one is uh, that's a bunch of Green Berets. Oh, that's uh, cool. Card, called uh, Horse Soldiers uh, Whiskey. Uh, or is it bourbon? Uh, but the guys who went on horseback in the initial uh, invasion of uh, Afghanistan. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And so I'll support them. That's that drink it. shit. When yeah. I lived in LA, a friend of mine called me one time. He's like, hey, I'm doing this PR thing for the army. They're going to pick us up if I wanted to go. So I went with them. We went to uh, Burbank. They picked us up in Blackhawk helicopters, flew us out to the army base that's out in the California desert out near the um they're Irwin. called like the Black Horse Rangers or Blackfoot Rangers or something. I think Fort Irwin, I think. Oh, yeah. my God. It was unbelievable. They had an entire facility set up to look like the Middle East, like yes. uh, Iraq or something. So we were there, and they fly these little bird helicopters. They did like a mock invasion, blew up a tank. It was unbelievable. We shot um, machine guns, the frigging cannons. Do, 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 do. It was unbelievable. It felt like I was a soldier. I missed my calling in life. I should have done this when I had the chance, and I just... It's my biggest regret in life, which is why I got the kids convinced the only choice for you is West Point, Annapolis, or Air Force, and they're into it. it well, one, it is a, well, one, we got the Army-Navy game coming up this Saturday, yeah. which is, uh, you know, it's just good fun. Yeah. Whoever wins. I know. Like I, but West Point Academy, Air Force, or Naval Academy, that education is top-notch. Exactly. Top-notch. Exactly. And you ain't faking your way through that school. I'd actually, if my son was ever interested, I, I would not... I, w I would push him towards West Point. 
there's something about West Point that's just a little different. And, yeah. and you know, I've probably got some Navy brethren who are like, <laughs> uh, it, it, dude, everyone in my MBA program was like from West Point. Um, it's just, I, I have this theory that West Point rules the world in a lot that of That to me is like the, the ultimate, the ultimate male. Go to West Point or any of the academies, do your military service, then go back and get an Ivy League MBA. I'm like, that guy, that guy, I, I want him, He make him the CEO. He doesn't even need experience. Just put him in. Funny enough, if you don't know this about West Point, you can go into any service you want from West Point. It's oh, I didn't the U.S. That. Military Academy. Oh, I didn't know you could go into, let's say, the Navy coming out of West Point. So I went back and spoke to... The young officers, this had to be about three, four years ago. Uh, I used to run the junior officer training course, which yeah. once the officers graduated yeah. from BUDS, I had a month with them to turn them into ground force commanders. Uh, best tour. Best tour. I love the combat. Don't get me wrong. That was, that's, that's my love and joy because I'm surrounded by just 40 absolute studs, and I've never feared. One, they're the gunfighters. I was the officer on the radio. Yeah. Never never feared with them by my side. But uh, So I'm, I'm speaking to these kids, and, of course, I, I asked, what's your commissioning source? Go around the room. There was four West Point uh, graduates wow. that had chosen to go to the SEALs. Wow. All studs. So. Um, when you when you went, were in the team, so when you went through um, BUDS, you were already an officer? So I actually enlisted in the Marine Corps because I met a force recon Marine. Okay. Wanted to be, I mean, wanted to be just like the guy. Um, everything about him was just, you're like, dude, I need to emulate yeah. that guy. Um, role model. And so became a recon Marine. I was a scout sniper. And then the Marine Corps said, hey, are you interested in going back to uh, school to become an officer? Mm -hmm. And uh, the war, it was, this was pre-9-11. I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of my friends were like, go, get an education, come back, yeah. and, and impact or affect more change as an officer. And so when I was at Texas A&M, which is where they sent me, uh, the war kicked off. And uh, since recon was not part of SOCOM at the time, yep. Now they've got MARSOC that's part of SOCOM. Uh, I had a lot of SEAL buddies that were seeing a lot of action. I'm like, if I'm going to go back, i got to be at the front. i got to be part of the Vanguard. And um, made the decision to, once I finished my degree, get commissioned as a Navy ensign instead of a, a Marine second lieutenant. Still went to Marine OCS and then went to BUDS, and it, it worked out. And so, so you went when you went to BUDS, you were an officer yes. prior. Yes. When you get there, what's the difference? Like, is everyone's treated equally? Oh yeah, you're you're all you're all worthless in the eyes of the uh, do instructors. Do the other enlisted guys know you're an officer? They do. How? They do. Uh, because you have a rank. Okay, you, you have like, a rank. But um, they don't salute you. They don't. They're not deferential to you if they're enlisted and you're an officer. You're all in the same. No, because you're all going after the same goal, regardless mm -hmm. of your rank. There's a lot of officers that drop. There's a lot of enlisted guys that drop, and it's just it's more. Hey, we've got to figure out a way to get through this together. They still put the officers in charge of the boat crews, okay? Because they're assessing their leadership uh, capability. But, um, you know, rank is within SOCOM. Yes, it's you recognize rank. We salute our officers, but uh, particularly JSOC, it was a first name basis. You knew who the commander was, um, and you really judged you know, rank. Competency knows no rank. Yep. So you can be a colonel. Or, or a Navy captain and be completely just inept and worthless and, and people won't care about your rank. Did you feel extra pressure going through it that you're like, man, I can't drop out of this. There's enlisted guys here. Like, I can't. But when I talked to Mitch, he was like, the way I got through it is I just looked at the guys on either side and I'm like, I'm going to quit after that guy quits. 
And then if he quit, then he'd be like, okay, well, that guy. And just keep finding excuses to be like, well, if that guy can do it, I can do it. So I had a great Marine mentor who was prior enlisted as well. And he was a major. He was at Texas A&M. And in fact, when I told him, hey, I want to switch to the SEALs, he's like, hey, man, the military is going to get their pound of flesh. Do what you want to do within it. But then when we went to the colonel, that was a different story. He called me a, a disloyal and a traitor. And I mean, he was, he was serious because Marine Corps basically just spent money to send me back to college. Yeah. But it's all the Department of the Navy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what uh, I always say drove me both in BUDS. And, and I just wanted to get through BUDS and get, get to the war because I'd been missing, like, mm-hmm. uh, from 9-11 until about 2004. Yeah. And I'm like, let's just, you know, I've already been through recon training, which is tough. Yeah. Like, let's just get this done. So I focused on leading. But ultimately what I, I say drove me on the battlefield was love and fear. Mm-hmm. Love for the guys. Mm-hmm. Did I like them all? Absolutely not. They didn't. <laughs> not all of them like me, but I love them all. And then fear that I would let them down. Yeah. And like, I didn't want to be the one that was on a mission that messed up and put somebody in harm's way. Um, How was Marine recon training versus SEAL training? So here's the thing about recon in the SEALs. SEALs does attract uh, more college graduates, college athletes. So their funnel attracts a higher performing individual from the start. But what I found about the recon community is to even get into the pipeline, their physical test is much more difficult to get to in. get to the starting point. Oh yeah. It was, I, I remember I had to do it. And I was, I was, somebody had to help me back to the barracks. It was, uh, it put me on my ass, but I, I finished number one out of like the 30 guys that were trying out. Do you remember what it was? So it was, you started with Marine Corps PFT which is a three-mile run. And at the time, I, I was running like close to 16. I, I, I ran in, in, in high school and was talking to a few colleges. Yeah. Um, then it's max pull-ups, max sit-ups. And then from there, they take you directly to the uh, O course. I think you had to do the O course like twice within a certain period of time. Gotcha. And then they go into calisthenics. Uh, it's max uh, score for, you know, jumping jacks, uh, mountain climbers, uh, what, what is it, uh, burpees. I mean, they have a whole slew. From there, you throw a rucksack on, and I can't remember the weight, I think maybe 25 to 40 pounds, and you run 10 miles to the pool. And everything's timed. 10 miles with how, how heavy was the pack? 25 to 40. Damn. Um, but it's one of those things, they, you know, in the Marine Corps, they built you up to carrying a ruck by that point. Um, once you get to the pool, it's 500 meters timed, and then... You've got to swim a brick, keeping it above water for, yep. I think, 50 meters. And then they get all the students together in the deep end and put you very close together. And they start sharking you. Uh, so the instructors will come down and pull one kid up or down. And then, you know, they don't hold you down too long, but you pop up. But when you pop up, other people are trying to stay afloat. And, it you know, you're hitting each other. And <laughs> you're in full camis. Um, and some people just say, yeah, I'm, this this isn't for me. When you're done with that, 10-mile run back to where you started, and it's complete. Dang. So for the SEALs, you know, one, uh, I think it's like a mile-and-a-half run. It's a 500-meter times uh, swim, pull-ups, sit-ups, and I, I don't think there's anything else. When I when I did that race in Mongolia with the backpack, I had never run with a backpack. And um, so with four weeks to go when I got into the race, some of these people have been training for like a year or two yeah. to get there. I just bought like a series of backpacks. I mean, I 
well, I bought one. It didn't work. It was chafing me everywhere on my hips. And it had 20 pounds in it. I put towels and water bottles in there. But uh, I was telling people that the difference, you would think like, oh, I'll run a backpack. make It's going to make a difference. But not that much. Dude, that backpack, it added at the same effort level. Like if I would run seven-minute miles without the pack, with the pack on the same effort, I'm running eight-minute miles, yeah. which is considerably yes. slower. And it's psychologically, I'm like, what in the hell? And I was working so hard. It was just... I couldn't believe how hard it was running with the backpack on. Not to mention it just destroyed my shoulders, neck, just chafing everywhere like open sores, bleeding for a week. It was, <laughs> it was well, crazy. I, I don't think there's anything overcoming that with that type of event, but it's interesting how guys get it down to a science oh, yeah. of what backpack, where it sits right above your tailbone 100%. so that it's supporting your weight. And Guys get very innovative with their gear and streamline it. I mean, there was one guy, I think he works for one of the major uh, hunting apparel companies, with, which basically has a seven-layer system. But we did winter training in Alaska, and he was an instructor, and he came out with a baggie full of tags that he had cut off all the backpacks, all the clothing, all the items. And he's like, this right here is four pounds of, of, of you know, yes. tags. If you remove that, that's four less pounds for every step you take. That's and right. so guys got innovative. Um, people, I mean, had we had a lot tooth, of people had their toothbrush cut to just the handle was gone. It was just a little thing. Of course, I was like, oh, that's all bullshit. I'm going to kill. And But when I got there, the two there were two guys that were super competitive in that race, a Swiss mountaineer and um, an Israeli special forces agent. And this these guys had everything dialed in. I was like, oh, I look like an idiot. I look like I showed up with all new stuff. All my stuff was there. There it is. And the crazy thing is I fell down on the second day and the backpack that I had, which was a high-end bag, the strap ripped right off the bag. So now it was like, it's a long story, but I basically took the knife that I was forced to carry. I cut a hole through it. That backpack I'm wearing there is a woman's backpack who dropped out and she gave me that and uh, she took mine because mine was ripped. So I had like jerry-rigged this thing together, but this thing didn't fit me. You can see the tape on my yes. um, shoulder. Yes. I had just like open sores everywhere, but I was like, fuck it. We're only here for a week, man. I'll, I'll die to win this race. And eventually I did. How many, how many uh, days? Six days, and it was a stage race, so every day was predetermined, so it was like 21 miles, 24, uh, 28, 50, 26, and then 5. What was the heat? Probably like got up to like 90, 95, but it was Ooh. the desert, so it wasn't as, it's not like Texas. It, yeah. was, it, it wasn't as bad as it sounded, but it was hot. I mean, obviously, I, every day I'd finish just completely caked in salt, like caked in salt. Um and, you know, all we had was the clothes we had on. So, like, rinsing them out and, like, taking care of yourself. Like, I again, I didn't know anything. I just knew common sense. So, and they were like, don't waste this water because they had water in, like, five-liter um, bottles. And they were like, don't waste it because it's all that we have. So they would boil it to pour in the MREs. Mm -hmm. And then there was, like, room temperature. But it's out in the desert all day. So I would, like, try to sneak behind the um, tent. And I'd have, like, one of the other guys hold the bottle over my head, take off all my clothes, try and shower down. I had a little tiny thing of soap um, that I brought, like, concentrated dish soap so that I could just use a little drop just to, like have some normalcy and I'd rinse out all my clothes and then hang them up. And, but even that people were like, you rinsed your clothes out. I'm like, dude, this is what we're racing to the death, man. I'm taking, yeah. I'm taking care of my bit. Like I'm, I'm caring for myself. It's all part of the process. And that part I actually enjoyed. It's like, 
get in my back, my sleeping bag and my, my sleeping pad and taking care of it and setting it up. One of the benefits of coming in first every day with, I was in a tent with three women is that I could get there and set my stuff up before they got there and like cause chaos. So I'd be all set up. I'd be like, Hey guys, I grabbed all your bags and everything. They're all in here, but uh, I'm all set up over there. <laughs> so that part of it was, um, that part of it was therapeutic after the day, you know, I'm sure, you know, after, um, after you guys go out on a mission, you come back and you debrief and you get your gear ready. Something about the gear, uh, preparation and, 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 and packing was therapeutic to me. And I, started to get into a groove that's why like when i saw the the parachute over there i'm like okay i can appreciate how like streamlined it is there's no it's no bulkiness it's all like dialed you know the one thing i appreciated about the guys and, and i'm not the most experienced jumper even though you know i stood the company up with a guy named andy stump uh yeah. who's got a oh yeah a, yeah. yeah and he's a smart smart dude yeah smart dude direct you talk about directness. <laughs> if, if, if you don't have thick skin Andy will get under your skin pretty uh, quick, but they run all the, and it's amazing watching the risk mitigation. Yeah. Like, do we have this? Do we have this? Then we're not doing it without that. And, and it puts me at ease for the, uh, the jumps Yeah, when you got technical experts like that who just will not budge on surf, certain safety parameters. So I think I heard Tim Kennedy talking about this on Joe's show. Now that you mention it, that he went out there and did this Moab to jump with you. And I was listening to that thinking like, and I want to do something like that. I want to hang out with guys like that that are doing stuff. Like, I want to live. Like, I'm going out to L.A. in a couple of weeks with uh, my friend Jelly Roll. And uh, he's like, yeah, listen, we're going to go to um, we're gonna go to Brett Kreischer's show. Then we're going to go to the UFC in Vegas. Then we're going to play blackjack with Dana White. I was telling my wife, I'm like, can you, like, I feel like someone's pranking me. Like, this is really going to happen to me? But, yeah, <laughs> there's my man Jelly Roll. <laughs> So when I met, when I moved to, uh, when I moved to Nashville, he's my neighbor and he had just started to like get some traction. I tease him all the time. So no one knew who he was, but he was like famous, but not like this. This is crazy. So I was telling him the other day, I'm looking at my Instagram out of the clear blue. I noticed what the, the rock is following me. That's crazy. No way. I send them a message. Hey, uh, thanks for following, man. I loved your interview with my buddy, Joe Rogan. He sends me a voicemail. Hey, bro, rock here. Uh, loved your Instagram. Loves listening, looking at your content. You're right, man. You got to exercise like your life depends on it. Uh, you know, I'm ready to run to a brick wall after looking at your stuff. I'm going to go hit the gym. Talk to you later. The fact that he took the time to do that, that is awesome. It speaks to his character. Un I can't say enough good things about him. Like some random friggin' dad. This guy takes the time. He's got 300 million followers. Tell him to run for president. Oh my God. So cool. My kids were like, dad, the rock knows you. My littlest guy goes, dad, I think you're famous. <laughs> I said, no, nah, buddy, that's all relative. I said, we're just lucky. Could you imagine if we had the rock as president? <laughs> Put the fear of God. <laughs> it, would, it would change. Oh yeah. He would institute a, have you ever seen the, uh, the footage of, uh, I think it's like La Can La Cantera High School in California near the LA area. No. It was like 60s, 70s when they had like this insane physical fitness. Oh yeah, when they show the black and white things, the guys doing push-ups and monkey bars and shit. They, they look like a bunch of Marines. Yes. Like it, we've got to go back to some. We've missed. got to get kids. Like one of the greatest things you can do for kids is just keep them active. Oh man, when we when we're done, I'm gonna show you. My wife sent me a um a clip the other day she posted on Instagram. 
my husband's super into sports. One of the perks is we get all the toys. So she posted a video. One of my kids is running on the treadmill. She's using the new rower we got. My little guy is on the floor doing like dumbbell presses. He's eight in front of like one of those mirror things, like workout things. The whole family's down there working out. I was like, I said to my wife, I go, this is one of the best videos you've ever sent me. Nothing makes me happier than seeing the kids like take care of themselves and trying to instill that in them. And again, I want to be very clear. I don't pressure my children to have sporting athletic results, but effort, anything less than 100% is unacceptable. You don't have to be good, but you do have to try because that's the only thing you can control. Everyone loves the kid out there that's running off the field, running on the field in baseball, hustling all the time, trying hard, caring about what happens. And if anything, that's hopefully what I've instilled in them. And I think that that carries over. They're not the best. They're not the worst, but they definitely hustle and try. And, and we instill in them like good attitude. My little guy is very, my middle guy is very emotional. So if he like strikes out at baseball, he's like slamming his bat down. I'm like, buddy, if you are afraid to fail, you never get to be the best. No one just gets to show up and kick ass from day one. Everyone strikes out. The best players in the world strike out. Learn what what did, what did I do wrong? What could I do better? So trying to get them comfortable with that. I think that that's one of the most important elements of parenting is un making them understand getting comfortable with failure. It's like the little one is into jujitsu. He loves it. You can't be good at jujitsu and not lose all the time. How are you going to learn if you could just show up and throw people around the around the uh, academy? Why would you want to be good at it if any other guy can show up and do the same thing to you? Part of that whole process and what I love about jiu-jitsu for the little one is you learn to make mistakes, have failures, correct them, and slowly get better. And you can see it in real time as they start to get better. There was a girl there that used to just beat him up all the time. She would just manhandle him. And now he's like, yeah, Dad, did you see the girl? I was like, yeah, yeah, you're getting it pretty good. He goes, do you remember that that was the girl that like would just throw me around and be like super aggressive with me? He's like, now I can do anything I want to her. And I was like, yeah, but you always seem to be super gentle with her. He's like, what good is it going to do to embarrass her? I was like, the empathy. this kid gets it. Yeah. It was, it was like the greatest thing that, that he's ever said to me. He's like, well, what am I going to get out of embarrassing her? So, you know, the book... Right there, The Everyday Warrior, that book is predominantly about failure. And yeah. I, I'd say I've had great mentors, both peers, bosses, but failure is the greatest mentor if you know how to process it. But with your son, I mean, the fact that he gets so frustrated shows he cares. Oh, my God. The, the middle one is, uh, he's, he cares. But the little one is like, has a very like old school mentality of like, Something about combat sports, he does jiu-jitsu and wrestling. The other kids didn't want it. And you can't make them want that kind of contact. No. It's like it's not easy. It took me a long time to get comfortable with that and go figure it out for myself with the boxing. But as a little kid, I didn't want that. And the little one, he's like, man, it's so rewarding to go. And it's like we connect. I really make a conscious effort of not trying to debrief too much with him afterwards and talk to him about what he's doing right. And I just tried to focus on dude, you did great no matter what. And, and it's not about giving him a false sense of security. It's just about, I want it to be a positive experience yeah. even when it's not. And it's, um, and there's been too many learning lessons to go over right now, but <laughs> I've made so many mistakes with him, but he's just like a good little person. He listens and Dana White invited him to the UFC. So him and I went to the uh, show in Boston, his first fight Dana put us in the front row of the VIP section, was sitting in a few rows ahead of the Celtics head coach. My son was just 
there's pictures on my Instagram of him in his Celtics jersey. Even with his Celtics jersey, I was like, whose jersey do you want, Tatum? He's like, can I get my own name on the jersey? I only want our name on it. So he's got his jersey. It says right out on the back. He's got a leprechaun hat. In between the main and the co-main, Dana comes over, grabs him, takes my phone, takes my son, brings him into the cage. In between the main and the co-main, this place is packed and gets Cameron, go stand in the cage. And Cameron's standing in there with his hands up, takes a picture of him. Then he interrupts the broadcast, takes a picture of him with Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier, has Bruce Buffer hold his hand up like, you know, like he's announcing the winner of the fight. He's eight. He, I was like, I, I've done some, I've been to some awesome events, but to be there with my eight-year-old son sitting in the front row, Johnny Damon comes over, takes off his World Series ring, from this time with the Red Sox, gives it to my son. So my son's standing like this with Johnny Damon with a World Series ring on. It was just unbelievable. It was like a dream come true. And Dana, no, just to be a good person. There was no, like, there he is. <laughs> look, at, look at the ring. That's insane. It's crazy, right? Johnny Damon. And, I mean, we're sitting, like, right behind Joe. It was just Jocko. There's Joe. Like, this is during the broadcast. He's like, Joe, Joe. Joe takes his headphones off. My son, every picture with his hand up. Man. What an experience. On top man. of the world. And Dana, just like, no reason. There's the Celtics head yes. coach. After Dana takes all the pictures, he says, how was that? I said, dude, the only person he wants to get a picture with is Missoula. So he's like, Joe, Joe, come down here. Watch this. So Johnny gave me his World Series ring. I mean, for a kid from Boston to be wearing a World Series ring. That's insane. What a day. And there's Joe and those guys right behind us. It's Hard crazy, to top right? that one. Oh. Hard to top that one. It doesn't even seem real when I look at it. I'm like so incredibly grateful just to have an experience like that with my children. Man, it gets me emotional. You know, I've, I've never met Dana White. Damn, everything he does has impressed me from afar. What a nice guy, man. No reason to do this. I mean, he was on our podcast once, but I mean, I don't have like a relationship with him per se, but he, I saw him in Nashville. He's like, Hey, I hear your son's really into jujitsu. I'm like, Oh, he loves it. He's convinced he's going to fight in the UFC. He's like, can you bring him next week to Boston? I'm like, yes, I can. Flew up there for the day. Just me and him stayed in a hotel, flew back the next morning. Unbelievable experience. Did you see, did you see what he just did with Peloton? Oh my God. It was the best. <laughs> it's the truth, man. Dude. And he, he had the, he had the Pelotons out with it by, I think it was lunch. So good. Yeah, so, <laughs> so good. He's you know again, sanity. He he preaches sanity in an insane world, and he's you know I got to respect people who are just not going to budge. That's it. You don't have to agree with him, but he believes what he believes, and he's going to stand by it. And if you don't agree, like deal with it. You don't have to agree with everything. It's okay to disagree with someone and be like, oh, I don't really agree with what they stand for. I'm not going to deal with them, and leave it at that. You don't have to tell everyone everything you think. No, and. Um, the pendulum will come back. It Hell will. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The uh, the silent majority will step up, and and the nonsense will will come to an end. But Ken, dude, you are dude a good mug, man. I'm I'm glad we 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 found the time to get you on. Well, I know it was a long time me, coming. Man. And where where can one people find Athletic Brewing Company, and then where can people follow you? Um, athletic Brewing is wherever you buy beer. And uh, people can find me on Instagram. I always tell people I'm very easy to find because inevitably people talk shit to me on Strava. And I'm like, uh, I post every run I ever do. Come find me. I'm very easy. I'm very accessible. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Uh, you, you also run uh, some coaching. 
on the side. Is, is that correct? I did Fitness. for a little while. I've been doing less of it just because I just time. time. It's really hard. So I've got a few people that I've been coaching like one on one, but I've been doing less of it just because I'm I'm in the process of writing a book. I've got a TV show in development with a awesome production company called Wheelhouse Production, and my friend Brent Montgomery. He produces um, uh, Alone. By the yes. way, he produces Alone. Yes. He's like. Ken, you'd be awesome for a loan. I was like, dude, what the F? I thought we were friends. I go, you want me to go on a loan and, and embarrass myself? I'll be dead in a week from starvation. I couldn't catch a fish. I wouldn't know the first thing about anything. I couldn't build a house. I'd be like living under a rock. Uh, but no, he's a good guy. We're working on some different concepts uh, around prisons. And uh, I'm hoping someone green lights this. But Brent Montgomery, what a super nice guy. They do a loan intervention, Pawn Stars, Duck Dynasty, mm. like all non-scripted stuff. Just awesome people. And uh, yeah, that's been one of the greatest blessings of this running stuff is that it's helped me kind of get on the radar with some other people. And um, man, some of the people that I've become friendly with is like a dream come true. It doesn't even seem real. And, you know, hopefully I can use the platform that I have in writing, um, in writing my book and kind of sharing some of what we discussed today. And, you know, not that I have all the answers, but I have the answers for me and maybe something that I've been able to do or learn can be helpful to other guys, men in particular, especially around the topic of uh, mental health and kind of trying to remove the stigma of, um, you know, struggling with mental health. I think it's, well, the crazy thing is when I've, as I've started talking more about my experience at onsite, there's others too, like the Hoffman Institute, mm -hmm. um, um, Paul Conti, who's Andrew Huberman's good friend has a, has a facility in, uh, in Oregon. Um, as I've talked about that, like I did, I was doing an interview with Lance Armstrong. He's like, Oh, I've been to onsite a few times. I'm like, Oh my God. Like the amount of people that have been there is crazy. And once I mentioned that on, um, Rich Roll's podcast, the outpouring of support from others has been, I didn't realize that other people were struggling with any of this. I just thought I was unique that like, uh, I mean, I'm just going to tell the truth and talk about my struggles. And all of a sudden people have come out of the woodwork. And I, I didn't realize so close to the surface was other people going through the same exact things and people you might not expect. And it tends to be very successful people because once you get comfortable with this and deal with this, it allows you to be a better version of yourself. I think for a lot of people is they just don't take the time to reflect. And when you go into one of those programs, you're forced to reflect. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I'm taking uh, John Wellborn, which um, he's here in Austin, 10 years in the NFL. Uh, dude was 300 pounds, 8% body fat. Well, he was an offensive lineman, Holy like just shit. ripped to a T. He runs power athlete. He's the CEO and founder of it. He's the one that founded CrossFit or CrossFit football. Oh, Back wow. in the day, if you remember that, it was, uh, it, it, was, it was a massive thing. And then eventually, I think CrossFit's like, hey, go do your own thing because you're <laughs> sort of cannibalizing the, uh, yeah. the main business. But him, uh, the guy who just uh, retired as the SEAC, he was a JSOC operator. SEAC is the most enlisted guy in the entire U.S. military. Just phenomenal dude. San, Sanjay, who's uh, a big-time world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. I know him. Ribeiro? You know? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was Here in Austin as well. I was in a um, <laughs> I was in a sauna once with Laird Hamilton, and it was me, no Laird, Hamilton, Laird Hamilton, Sanjay, uh, Justin Wren, who lives in Austin, mm -hmm. and um, Rafael Lovato Jr. Yo, Rafael's great, man. What a freaking nice guy. So I posted on Instagram, like, a world-class surfer, a bunch of ninjas, and an old dad walk into a sauna. 
<laughs> we're going to uh, Rhythmia Resort in Costa Rica to do plant-based medicine. But oh, Rhythmia, so damn. Kelly Slater's on the board. Uh, there's a lot of you know celebrities and high-performing athletes that have all been there. Uh, this will be a first. What are you for guys going to do? So ayahuasca is their main plant, uh, but it is a holistic program. I mean, you're going through a yeah, lot of medical yeah, yeah. treatments. You're going through a lot of reflection. You're talking to psychs. That's so hardcore, it's a, it's an interesting crew that we're bringing out. All who've suffered trauma in some way or the other, uh, either physical or, or or mental, due to the the high level of performance they maintained, myself excluded. Um, I've never tried ayahuasca, but I did smoke DMT. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God. The God molecule. It is. Trying to explain to someone, it's like, imagine if your brain did something like one of your five senses, like smell or taste, and your brain did something that you didn't realize it was capable of doing. It was earth-shattering. It's probably one of the top, like, two or three most profound things that's ever happened to me. It was, like, momentarily terrifying, like, you'll convince you're dead. I'm like, oh my God. It's like that feeling. With a smile on your face. Imagine if someone threw you off a skyscraper in that first second when you're flailing to grab back on. That feeling, which you'll never forget, that's what happens when it initially, when you initially get under the influence and then eventually you're like, oh, you have a realization. I'm not dead. And then you have like all this reflection of like, I was just dead and now I'm not. I am so grateful that I have so much life in front of me and all the things that I thought were bothering me in a relative basis aren't really that important. You don't shirk your responsibilities, but it puts things into perspective in a way that you were like, how did I not know this? Why did it take dying to realize this? Because in your mind, you're like, yeah, man, dying sucks. I tell the woman as soon as it was over, I was like, you should give this to anyone that's suicidal because when you feel that fear, you're like, no, 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 I'm not ready for that. (laughs) I don't want that. I want to like, fix the things I can fix right now. So I was fortunate to, to do DMT. And uh, I would agree with you, probably one of the top three sort of moments of my life where I had to put some things down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had us practicing let go, let go, because they said at first, oh, a lot yeah. of people just go into fight. Oh, mode. yeah. And I just kept repeating that. And I initially clinched up for, of they course. said, about five seconds. And then just in my mind. Like of course a, you clinched up. It's You've just been thrown off a yep. building. You're like, yep. please don't do this. Please, I, I take it back. I don't want to do it. And then the minute you realize it's over, you can't fight this. The second that I stopped fighting it, it was like, boom. Oh, all of a sudden I was like euphoric, but still like under the influence. It's hard to explain to someone. I know people are going to listen think I sound like a lunatic, but, and it's not something that someone was like, how was it? Should I do it? I'm like, do you think you need it? It's not something that I would convince someone to do, but if they were like, I'm thinking of doing this, I'd be like, you should definitely do it then. But there's don't there's there is nothing recreational about this whatsoever, at least in from my opinion. It was therapeutic to the nth degree. And doing it in the right set, setting yes. with people who are professionals within that 100%. space is, yeah. is is key. Or you could do LSD in your your bedroom listening I, to heavy metal and I'm sure. I it couldn't think of experience. something more scary. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. think of something more scary than to be in the wrong environment with that kind of uh, medicine. Okay. Well, I will get you on the next expedition. The guys oh, would love to meet. You love, love this it. is a great group of guys, man. Um, and we have fun. And I'm we, with it. I want to do it's, everything. It's pure red meat, pretty much all steaks <laughs> that we eat. And then uh, Scott Evan. And uh, we also bring uh, the guy who did the Blair Witch. Yeah. Dan Myrick. Yeah. Which broke every indie record. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. he does all the filming alongside Will. Um 
and we'll I'll, I'll shoot you the short documentary we're doing on Moab. Oh, but, please include me in the next one. Like, I'd love done. to do it. If you guys want to bring, like, uh, an old, inexperienced dad and do, like, cool military stuff, I'm with it. We'll see what, like, a, how a normal person reacts to this crazy shit. While the world may not believe in the handshake, you have my handshake. I'll let you know the next one. If the dates don't I work out, wait. we'll get you on one of these down the road. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. And congrats on all your success. I mean, when, when I was looking at your resume and coming here, I was like, Jesus Christ, this mother effer has done everything. <laughs> This guy's done everything that I wish I had done. So congrats. And Thank you. And I still awesome. go home and, and as, as my wife says, poop patrol. <laughs> clean up after the dogs. Yep. So uh, no, it keeps me humble. Um, and I appreciate that. And, and congrats on everything you've done. And uh, guys, go follow Ken Rideout uh, on Instagram. His content is just wildly professional, wildly on point. Great nuggets. And, and like you said, with your book, you know, if one, if it impacts even one person yeah. and they take away one nugget and apply it to their lives, I mean, that's why we have this podcast is interesting conversations with interesting individuals from which we can learn. And you are the model of that, my friend. Thank you, so, brother. Appreciate all right, guys. You. Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Thanks for joining. Remember, go leave a review. We actually read the reviews. It's that feedback mechanism that helps us improve. And whether it's good or bad, We'll, we'll, we'll take it at uh, face value. We will not get emotional. Um, but thanks for your support. We'll see you next time.